Good morning, guys. How are we doing? And hello to people on the live stream. Um, yeah, I, um, I feel like there's probably maybe more people watching on live stream than here. So forgive me if I eyeball the camera now and again as well. Try and make them feel included, you know. Um, so I've just kind of been uh, speaking even this morning about how much I've been enjoying this series that we've been looking at and re really excited to share some things with you this morning um, from Nehemiah 8. Um, I'll, I'll try and um, kind of just pick out the highlights of it because there was a lot that I, um, yeah, and we don't want this to be an hour-long sermon, you know, as much as that's good, you don't want to listen to me speak for an hour. Um, so let's read from Nehemiah 8, 2 to 10 um, to begin. Um, so at this point, um, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Israelites are coming together um, to celebrate. Um, so let's read from verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood 13 men who represented the 13 tribes of Israel. And then as Ezra opened the book, all the people could, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, again, 13 of them to represent the, the tribe of, um, yeah, the Levites, instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. For anyone who knew me when I was younger, kind of growing up, I was one of those kids at church who made my youth pastor's life quite difficult. Um, because I really loved pranks. I loved pulling pranks. It was kind of my thing. And I had a bunch of mates who would all sort of egg each other on a little bit with pulling pranks. And I sort of still enjoy pranks, but I've, I hopefully in my wisdom of old uh, age have learned that the art of a good prank is knowing where to draw the line, knowing how far to take a prank and when to, okay, that's the point. Um, Unfortunately, I hadn't mastered this art when I was younger. Um, I sometimes pulled pranks that maybe went a bit too far in hindsight. Um, in, in year 12, I had this ancient history teacher called Mr. Purvis. And Mr. Purvis was, I'll say for me, the best high school teacher I ever had. He loved ancient history. It was his jam. He 
lived and breathed ancient history in holidays, school holidays. He would fly to Israel or Turkey or to Egypt or to Italy and he would look at these historical sites and he would take all of these photos along the way, just shamelessly snapping as many photos as he could. And then when he got back, still on holidays, he's not getting paid for any of this, he would compile all of these photos and bring them all together and staple them together in these textbooks that he'd make for us. And these books were so good that not only would he use them in his classes, but there were teachers, it turned out, all around New South Wales who were using these textbooks. Hours away, schools were using these textbooks that Mr Purvis was making himself. He just loved ancient history. He lived and breathed it and it, fl- it flowed out of him. He would, in the middle of class, his, his, his classes weren't sort of a typical high school structured class. He was almost more of a tutor because he just knew this content so flawlessly and effortlessly that he would say, and Agrippina had a strict, almost masculine domination. She exercised over the state. And who said that? And as we all know, it's Tacitus. Um, But essentially, he just loved ancient history and it flowed out of him. So one day, Mr Purvis was late to class. And my mate Miles and I, who always egged each other on, would or decided that it'd be a really funny idea to, while he wasn't there, flip every single desk in the classroom around and get his teacher's desk and kind of flip it. So when he walked into the classroom, the teacher's desk was right there with all of his stuff on it and we were all facing him the other way as if we were the teachers and he was the student. Um, And Mr Purvis was not only a great teacher in content but also quality because he had been teaching for about 40 years at this point and he knew how to deal with some unruly teenagers. So he just sighed and said, I'm going to go make a cup of tea. And when I come back, this is all going to be fixed. And he left the room. And at that point, we were pretty deflated because that's not really what you're wanting as the fruit of a prank. You're wanting a reaction. You're wanting someone to kind of bite and get angry and upset and frustrated. He didn't give us any of that because he knew that that's what we are looking for. So we quickly flipped all the desks back around and flipped all of the chairs back around. And by this point, some of the people in the class weren't really into the prank to begin with. So we're kind of resenting that they had to flip them all back around again. But we got it done. And when he eventually came back in, he said that classic phrase that I think any parent has probably said to a a child at some point in their life, which is, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. I'd taught you everything you needed to know. I knew the words so well and I shared them with you, these quotes, these these perfect little gems of knowledge. I'd made this book for you, this perfect book that you have to read that I've painstakingly put all of this effort into. I'd set you up for a win and yet the second I wasn't here, everything just turned to anarchy. I want to call this talk today, When the Teacher's Away. What do we do when the teacher's away? What's our attitude? What's our attitude when we're waiting for a new pastor? What's our attitude when we're isolated at home and no one knows whether or not we're watching the live stream? What's our attitude when suddenly the onus is on us to continue walking our spiritual journey without maybe the accountability that we've relied on, without maybe the other people in our lives who have kind of been feeding us spiritually? What do we do when the teacher's away? 
This excerpt from Nehemiah 8 on the surface is, is really encouraging. I mean, it's a pretty phenomenal thing that happens. Ezra is reading the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, and in, in reality, probably in this moment, reading excerpts from sort of Deuteronomy, or sorry, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, obviously, this is, this is a holy God-breathed word, but I mean, when's the last time someone read you the book of Numbers and you broke down on your knees and wept? It's not exactly the most sort of vibrant book of the Bible, and yet we see these people who are being so impacted by the Spirit in this moment that this is the sort of reaction that they have to God's Word. This is a place that they're at in this moment, and they're celebrating, they're full of joy, but Spoilers, not long after Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem and heads back to Babylon for a bit, and he comes back and the temples have been neglected, the Sabbath isn't being observed, the walls that they have built that we looked back at a couple of weeks ago are now being used as marketplaces. It's kind of completely gone to anarchy because the second the teacher's away, (laughs) they don't have any accountability. And it happens in part because these people didn't have their own intimate relationship with God. They were not teachers, they were students. And the second the teacher left the room, it all went up in flames. We see this classic Old Testament paradigm for spirituality in Nehemiah 8, where we've got Ezra, the priest, the mouthpiece of God. He brings the law to the people. Um, A lot of scholars sort of surmise that in this period of history, with this group of people, the literacy rate was probably about 3%. So in this room, one of us would have been able to read. So the Bible, the law of Moses at this point, was not accessible to these people the way that it is so accessible to us today. They relied so heavily on Ezra to be sharing the word of God because they didn't have that sort of accessibility. But also... We also see the elders who are representing each tribe of Israel. We see the Levites who are Moses' tribe who are explaining the law of Moses. They, they have some more understanding. There's this kind of dynamic of us and them. There's the people who sort of are showing and breathing and living and pouring out God, and there's the people who are receiving it. And I suppose the question is, Where do we see ourselves in this story, in Nehemiah 8? Do you see yourself in the crowd? Or do you see yourself as a leader, as a priest, as somebody who has the word of God flowing through them, as someone who is filled with the spirit, who carries it in themselves? It's very easy to see yourself as in the crowd. You know, it's, it's very easy to do that. Do you see yourself as Ezra the priest or in the crowd? Do you see yourself as the elders, God's representatives, or in the crowd? Do you see yourself as the Levites, God's chosen people, the translators of God's holy word? Or do you see yourself in the crowd? Because what's the danger of identifying ourselves as a member of a crowd rather than somebody who is called to share God's word, to be living and breathing Spirit of God. Two words, golden calf. In Exodus, we see what happens. Moses was their priest, the mouthpiece of God, their representative. 
And what happens the second Moses goes up Mount Sinai? They are lost. They don't know what to do. The Israelites start making a golden calf to worship because their relationship with God was entirely dependent on their relationship with Moses. They were kind of riding on Moses' spiritual coattails because they didn't have the sort of accessibility to God that we actually do now because they're living under an old covenant. So because I'm a bit of a nerd, I did a little bit of research about the golden calf because I was kind of intrigued. Obviously, in, in polytheistic religions, they don't have one God that kind of covers all like we do. They have all of these little sort of deities that represent different areas of their life. And I was kind of intrigued. I'm like, I wonder what at that point these people were looking for when they were making a golden calf. They didn't just kind of spin a wheel and choose one farm animal. There was some intentionality behind what they were doing. So we don't know for certain what, what this idol was as a representation. There's, there's a couple of guesses, and a lot of people guess that it may have been the Egyptian god Apis, which was a, a golden bull. And that kind of makes sense in a lot of ways because the Israelites had just spent 40 years in Egypt. They were immersed in the Egyptian culture. So it probably makes sense that that, that could have been what it was. And it's really interesting when you look at what Apis's role was for the Egyptians. Apis was an intermediary, a connector between humans and the Egyptian god Ptah, who was the creator god. Which is kind of interesting when you think about where the Israelites are in that moment and what they're trying to do through this. They had lost Moses in that moment. Moses had been up the mountain for weeks and they didn't know where he was. They didn't know if he was coming back. And they wanted to be in connection with their creator, God, again. So what do they do? They create something. They look back at their past. They look back at a worldly way of the Egyptians and create this idol in hopes that it will somehow connect them back to their creator, God. Because they don't understand the true nature of God because they've been relying on Moses up until that point. Because without Moses, they didn't know God. What do we do when the teacher's away? How can we be less like the Israelites when Moses left and more like the disciples in the book of Acts when Jesus ascends up to heaven? Because we see in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus, as we know, he leaves them, he ascends up into heaven. And then chapter 2, literally the next thing, the disciples are going, they're worshipping together, they get filled with the Spirit. And what happens? Peter preaches and 3,000 people give their life to Christ that day. That's not an image of people who feel lost, who, don't, uh, who have lost their connection to God without their priest, without Jesus there, in, incarnate, in the flesh. What do we do when the teacher's away? Now, we've got a couple of advantages, as I've mentioned, over the Israelites in the Old Testament. In both Exodus and Nehemiah, they're living under an Old Testament system, pre-Jesus, coming down to earth. And dying for us. So Paul explains this to us that we should be living under this new system, this new covenant, this new testament. In Galatians 3 23 to 28, Paul writes, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came and he might be that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all 
of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are under a new covenant. The idea of this is at the beginning of the universe, Jesus was sitting at a, on a throne at the right hand of God. And as we all know, he got down off that throne, humbled himself as a human being and literally turned the tables, but in a much more significant way than a teenage Murray turned the tables. He turned the tables in a symbol, in a sacrifice that was the most beautiful sacrifice that God could ever offer. He took our sin so that we could become priests. He stepped down from his throne at the right hand of God and he got out of the teacher's chair and humbled himself. He took our sin and took our place on that cross so that we now have the opportunity to sit at the teacher's chair. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, Paul writes, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what do we do when the teacher's away? Do we get up and do we sit down in the teacher's chair and take on that authority that we've been endowed with by Christ's sacrifice? Or do we kind of lean back on our chair, maybe swing on the back two legs and cross our arms and sort of wait for the teacher to come back? Sort of lose the whole point of why we're there in the first place. You are the teacher. It's not on anyone else to run the room. Jesus has given us everything we need. We are all priests. If you've accepted Jesus into your life, you are the Ezra. In 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, it's written, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? We are now carrying God's own breath, God's own essence within us as Christians. And it is our opportunity to be sharing that. So what now? What does it mean to be a priest, an ambassador of Christ? These are all very big kind of words. What does this all mean? to be an ambassador of Christ. But we're given this beautiful metaphor in Nehemiah 8, where Nehemiah, as the priest, leads the Israelites. And where does he lead them? To the water gate. In John 7, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from them. We lead people to water. We lead people to life. As we step into the responsibility of no longer being faceless in the crowd, but a chosen people, a royal priesthood, streams of living water are going to flow out of us. We're going to be an example of Christ. Because we are priests. We are all teachers. And because of that, 
we are now responsible for our own personal growth and development. 1 Corinthians 2.5, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That can be quite an intangible idea to grasp onto sometimes in, in, in times where we're feeling a bit overwhelmed, a bit anxious, a bit intimidated, a bit uncertain, a bit lost. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I kind of like this part. I reckon it's really relevant for us where we are as a society at the moment. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. How are we using this opportunity in our society, in our culture, as priests, as teachers, as Christ's ambassadors, to show that love, to share our resources, to not be selfish but selfless? In times of struggle, in times of turmoil, in times of stress, anxiety, fear, this is when we need to be being Christ's ambassadors. This is when we have the opportunity more than ever to share the joy of the Lord, to share happiness and pleasure that the Spirit of the Lord brings. And it's not until we place ourselves in a position where we rely on the strength of the Lord ourselves that we're really going to experience that pure joy. In Nehemiah 8, the word joy is written three times in this one chapter. That's not a coincidence. This is an intentional choice that Nehemiah makes. He's trying to exemplify how important joy is to us. He wants to emphasize joy that comes from the personal discovery and revelation of God that we carry inside of us like torches. A feeling of great pleasure and happiness. This is what God wants to bring. And you know, it's interesting. Paul has very little time for adult Christians who can't feed themselves. He's kind of quite harsh to them. <laughs> In Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, he writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When we get milk, we're relying on someone else. When we're finding solid food, we're getting it ourselves. The desks have all been flipped right now, and the teacher's seat is available. What are you going to do when the teacher's away? Are you going to step up, step into this season, no longer relying on spiritual milk, but rather finding spiritual meat so you can then grow and encourage others? The deep abiding joy that's found in the Word of God, studying it daily. You know, like I'll watch an hour and a half movie on Netflix Why is it so crazy that we would read the book of God for an hour and a half? Why is it so crazy that we would during the week be texting our Christian brothers and sisters, be calling them, be connecting with them in this time, sharing water, living water that flows through us? 
how many podcasts of world-class sermons that are literally free, available at our fingertips, are we listening to? How often do we just sit in silence and listen earnestly to what God, the being that created you, has to speak into your life? You know, I, I kind of caught myself out yesterday. I'd, I'd been scrolling on Facebook and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And at one point, Emily challenged me, you know, every time you put your phone down, you've got something more stressful, more angst-ridden to share about some new news about corona. This is the words that I was allowing to inform me, and then that's what's flowing out of me. But if we are eating, consuming spiritual meat, the Word of God, wisdom on high from the Holy Spirit, that is what's going to be flowing out of us. What do you want flowing out of you in this season? What do you want people to know you for in this season? Do you want them to know you for your anxiety, your fear, your panic, or do you want them to know you for the joy that you have? If you want to know what it looks like to have the joy of the Lord as your strength, look to Brian. (laughs) In times of stress, in times of panic, in times of uncertainty, I've had the pleasure of working with him every Monday for a, a couple of months now. And whenever that comes, he doesn't let it affect him because the joy of the Lord is his strength. You cannot wipe the smile off Brian's face because the joy of the Lord is his strength. He's not relying on any human, but he's relying on Jesus. Let's finish off with Colossians 3.16. And I might uh, call Beth to come up. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I reckon that's a pretty good segue into some worship. So let me quickly pray. God, thank you that your joy is our strength. Thank you that you sent your son to fill our place on that cross so that we can now step into being priests, being ambassadors of Christ. God, I pray that in this season we would be encouraged and filled with your word. And Lord, I pray that we would not be malnourished because we've been relying on spiritual milk, but that we would grow in strength and in faith and in joy because we are finding solid food in you. Use us this week to be your ambassadors. Use us this week to have living water flow through us. Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.